one family. Let's all stand up this morning as we praise the Lord. Let's put our hands together. Father, we just thank you for this opportunity that we get to come before you and offer up our praise as incense to
it's good to be gathered in the house of the Lord. And we believe that the Lord, by his spirit, gathers us in consecrated time into consecrated space to consecrate us as individual people, as the body of Christ. And when we come into this space for gathered worship, we are more than just the sum of our parts, that we are what we could never be without God. And that is his body and his bride, those who look like him, those who are empowered to act like him in the world. And aren't you glad for it? Aren't you grateful that God forgives us our sins? He touches our minds, our bodies, and sanctifies us and heals us and brings us closer and closer toward wholeness. This is the work that our God does. One of the ways it happens is as we fix our eyes on him and ask the question, who is this God? Theologian Robert Jensen, a great theologian of the 20th century, said that that is the question that the people of God are asking is, who is this God? And we have to answer it with at least two parts. The first is, God is whoever raised Jesus from the dead, right? That Jesus' mortal body was dead and in the tomb. And God, through the power of the Spirit, breathed life into Jesus' body and resurrected him from the dead. But that is not a new God. That God is the same God who first delivered Israel from the hands of Egypt. It's the same God from the beginning of the story to this moment, to the end of our story, to which we look in the future, that God is always the same. And we know his character and we sing about it in that last song because David gave us these words from Psalm 103. So we're gonna put these words from Psalm 103 that David knew hundreds of years before the life of Christ was ever revealed in the incarnation and the earth. And we get to sing about them and read aloud today. So let's read this as a corporate body testifying to Holy Scripture in Psalm 103. Praise the Lord my soul, all my inmost being, praise his holy name. Praise the Lord, my soul, and forget not all his benefits, who forgives all your sins and heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit and crowns you with love and compassion, who satisfies your desires with good things so that your youth is renewed like the eagle's. The Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love. This is the word of the Lord. Holy Spirit, we ask that you would open our hearts to receive these words that are true. And may our mouths respond with praise today of who you are, the living God revealed Father, Son, and Spirit. We ask that you would touch us and make us more like you, empower us, to live as Jesus lived in the earth. Who do we say he is? Who do we say he is? Some say just a prophet, some say just a man, but who He's Jesus. Let's sing it out. Jesus, Son of God and Savior.
sink in. There is coming a day when Jesus will return and make every wrong right. So 
power to save. No one else, no one else but Jesus, Messiah, once again. No one else, oh, no one else, no one else is over, has overthrown the grave. No one else, no one else has the power to save. No one else, no one else but Jesus, Messiah. But Jesus, Messiah, one more time. Jesus, Messiah. We sing majesty.
Open the heavens, receive what is yours, Jesus, receive what is yours. Worthy are you, God.
Worthy are you, Jesus. Worthy are you, Jesus. Guys, I think we're not quite done yet pouring out our affections unto God. I'm going to share some scripture, and then Jonathan, if it's okay, I want to go back into that just a little bit. Because I think there's a degree of revelation that the Lord's wanting to pour out to us today about his worth, about his majesty, about his goodness. And I'm reading to you guys from Revelation chapter 5, beginning in verse 9. And they sang a new song. You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals because you were slain. And with your blood, you purchased men for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And thank God he did because, guys, most of us in here are that people. We are that other tribe, that other nation, that other language. That is us. You have made them to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God, and they will reign on the earth. Then I looked and heard the voice of many angels, numbering thousands upon thousands and ten thousands times ten thousands. Can we even imagine? They encircled the throne and the living creatures and the elders and the loud voices they sang. Worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise. Then I heard every creature in heaven and on the earth and under the earth and on the sea and all around them singing to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb be praise and honor and glory and power forever and ever. This is our God. He is worthy. He is worthy of every hand raised. He is worthy of us pouring out our song. He is worthy of every bent knee. He is worthy of every dance and every tear and every affection. He is worthy because he is holy. And guys, it's really hard for us, I think, sometimes in our fallen state to to really grasp what that means. Even our greatest attempts as humans to think about how God is good and how he's holy. It it just pales in comparison to the real thing. Guys, he's done it all. He's done it all. And whether he's answered that prayer that we've been praying or he has, we have not yet seen the fulfillment of that. He is good. He is holy and he is worthy. He is worthy of every crown being left before him every good thing, every victory, every hardship, and in those hardest moments of our life, guess what? He is still worthy of our worship. So I want us to go back into this song, and I want us to have another opportunity to really pour it out on him, because guys, he deserves the outpouring of our love upon him. So let's go back into this, and guys, for another minute, just pour it out. Pour out your affection on the Lord.
Oh, Jesus, be honored by our worship today. Be adored in this place. You are so worthy. Thank you. Thank you for all that you've done that we know of and all that you've done that we have no clue. Help us to see you. Help us to respond to you, God. Help us to love you better. Grace us to love you better because you deserve it. You deserve it. You're so good. It's out of this place of affection that we want to give unto the Lord. So whatever the Lord has laid upon your heart to give, give it out of the outflow of that love for him. Give it out of the flow of understanding that he's so worthy of everything. There are four ways to give. Those ways will be on the screen. Together, we're going to say this prayer. And this prayer is something that we speak out because when we give, we want to not just give haphazardly. We want to give out of a place of faith, out of a place of gratitude and devotion, but also receiving back unto God, being formed into the image of Christ because God is the ultimate giver. And he's forming us into being givers. So that's out of that that we give today. So let's say this prayer together, family. Father, you are the abundant giver of all good things. Train us to delight in holy dependence. Lead us to honor you with all of our resources. Free us from deceit and greed and earthly riches. Teach us to give generously with open hands and joy-filled hearts that we might receive abundantly and flourish for the sake of others and your purposes in the earth. Amen. Amen. Let's grab our kids close to us. We're going to pray the Lord's Prayer together. Teaching those little ones how to bring their prayers before the Father as before we send them off. Let's pray this together, family. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our sins as we forgive those who have sinned against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom and the power and glory forever. Amen. Kids, you are dismissed. Man, welcome this morning to New Life Midtown. If this is your first time, we are so thrilled you're with us. Before you sit down, we're going to take just a minute and meet and greet one another before we go into the Word.
Hey, New Life Midtown. Whoa, I know what you're thinking. Lauren, what are you doing on the screen today? Why aren't you on stage? Well, it's because I'm with your kiddos upstairs. So today you get the virtual announcements. Number one, we have this week coming up, First Wednesday Worship. And this one's a really special one because we will be recording a new album. So you're not gonna wanna miss it. Come on out Wednesday, 6.30 p.m. at New Life North. Also, this Saturday is City Serve, and there are still so many spots open. You can serve at Buena Vista Elementary, at Life Network, or for one of our Fostering Hope families. You can find all of the QR codes, all of the ways to sign up at the Welcome Center. And last but not least, on October 15th, we are going to have baptisms at the 9 a.m. and 11 a.m. service. And so if you are looking to get baptized, sign up. You can go to the Welcome Center. We'll have a sheet you can fill out, and we look forward to seeing you there. This is not all that we have going on here at Midtown. There is so much more. So I recommend that you jump online, jump on the events page, and see everything that we've got going on. But we hope to see you at one of these events. Man, can we give her a hand even though she's not in the room? Like, great job, Lauren. I will pass that on to her that you guys cheered for her little video announcement. It was really sharp. It was really great. Is that Braddock and Judy right there? It's good to see you guys. I was having lunch on Friday, and this sweet lady rolls up, and she says, are you Pastor Jade? And then she begins to tell me her story about how her and her family, Nora and Nash, and Braddock and Judy came and found Midtown, and that was just so delightful. I've been thinking about your family ever since then, so thank you for saying hi. I'm so glad you guys are here. Guys, welcome to church this morning. Wow. Oh, are you guys going to make me fight today? God, listen, I, 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 don't, I can't fight today. I need you to help me, all right? So welcome to church this morning. Oh, woo. Thank God. I was going to have to call on some extra Holy Ghost help in the morning. Help me, Lord. Um, for those of you guys who are aware of this show, a couple of months ago, I, I, uh, I injured myself playing in the river, so I, I hyperextended my toe. You athletes might have heard of something called turf toe, right? It's where uh, your, your big toe gets hyperextended backwards. I was hiking. And uh, my, my left foot slipped, probably went down to almost my knee. And so my, my, my little right toe um, sustained the weight of my entire body. So I've been working on that for two months, icing it four, five, six times a night, ibuprofen, boot, crutches, the whole deal, and was feeling really, really good. And uh, so yesterday the boys were like, Dad, you want to come play football? And I was like, yeah, heck yeah, I do. Let's go. Let's, let's do this thing, right? And uh, playing all-time quarterback, both sides, it was amazing. And then this hellstorm hits us out of the blue, out of nowhere. And uh, so we're running back home. And this is the first time I've run on my foot in two months. And I was like, oh, it's feeling pretty good. I'm going to start picking up some speed. It's feeling, still, you know, hellstones are hit, pelting me in the head. And uh, so I'm sprinting home. And I think, uh, I don't think it was quite 100% healed yet because... I'm feeling that little, that little run, you know, so uh, pray for me, pray for strength and grace on my toe, I woke up this morning, my voice wasn't quite 100%, felt really thin, and uh, I was like, Lord, I'm just going to give you my weakness today, do something with my weakness that only you can do in my weakness, amen? Guys, I do feel like I have a word for you, it's a, it's a fear of the Lord word, honestly, it's, it's, it's a sobering word, it's a heavy word, I don't know how else to say this. Um, it's an important word in my life and in my life journey and my life message. 
And it's something that I think if you will allow it to, it has the power to to really stabilize and anchor your life in the very best way possible. So without further ado, I'm going to pray and I'm going to invite you to turn with me to the book of 1 Kings chapter 3. And today in our series on kings and kingdoms, we're going to examine the life of Solomon. And we're going to let the life of Solomon from the beginning to the end speak to us and teach us and form us and shape our hearts after the Lord. So pray with me if you would. Holy Spirit, we ask for help today. Lord, we ask for the empowerment of the Spirit of God to animate the Word of God, to bring revelation, to bring truth, to bring life, to bring freedom. Lord, I pray today that you would search us and that you would examine us. God, that you would... You would help us to know us in a way that we don't know ourselves yet because only you know us. Father, I pray today that um, the spirit of grace would cover every word. Lord, I pray that the invitation of God would be so clear and that we would be a people that respond today. Help us to learn from this man. And more importantly, help us to learn what the spirit of God is speaking to us in Jesus' name. Amen. If you're joining us today for the first time, I want to welcome you and greet you. My name is Jay Duncan. My lovely wife, Christy, was on the stage earlier. We've been here in the city for 19 years in this exact same church the entire time. And what an incredible blessing and honor it is to be in this city, but more importantly, to be in this house of believers. We've seen a lot happen in 19 years. And in so many ways, we just feel like, at least I do, feel like we're just getting started, right? We're just getting started. God has made promises to the city God has made promises to this church, and I believe God has made promises to us uh, in light of what he wants to do, in light of people's lives he wants to touch, and lost people he wants to see saved, and unity and diversity in the city, and healing in the city. And I just want you to know that this is a house that's contending for those things. We're contending for the good purposes of God, and we invite you to be a part of that. All right, guys, if you would, go with me to the book of 1 Kings chapter 3. We've been on this series on kings and kingdoms, and we've been doing a biographical character sketch on different people. Today, we're brought to a figure by the name of Solomon. And if you're not aware of who Solomon is, Solomon was, uh, by the Bible's very own words, he was the wisest man, the wisest human who had ever lived. And I I would put a little parenthetical statement here. That up until the time of Jesus, there was never a wiser person that had ever walked on the face of the planet, before Solomon or after Solomon. And the way that he became wise was very, very simple. Anybody have an idea? He asked for it. So simple, right? So as the story goes, David, who we recognize as one of the greatest kings of Israel, and not because of all the right decisions that he made, but because his heart was always responsive and repentant to the Lord, that his heart in all things was towards God. It was after God. In fact, God himself described David as a man who is after my heart. I love that. In fact, I, I would love for the Father to speak that about me. And I would love for the Father to speak that about you. That when he looks at Midtown, he says, that is a people that is after my heart. They're, they're not passive. They're not neutral. They're a people that are in hot pursuit of my heart. They're in hot pursuit of my face. They're in hot pursuit of what I have for their lives. And I, I pray that that is a prayer that wells up inside of every single one of us. So Solomon 
has got these massive shoes to fill. David is the second king of all of Israel. Uh, David's got this special relationship with God. He's written all these amazing poems, these amazing psalms, and Solomon is feeling the weight of stepping into these massive shoes of being king of Israel. We found out last week that he was in a little bit of a power struggle with his older brother Adonijah, that Adonijah was conspiring and had actually attempted to steal the kingdom right out from underneath Solomon's nose. (laughs) And uh, God's promise to Solomon through David was, I will raise you up and I will establish you. And so the second chapter of 1 Kings ends by saying that Solomon's leadership, that his kingdom was now established. This is amazing. So the second chapter of 1 Kings ends with Solomon fulfilling some promises that David, his father, had asked him to make. And the second chapter ends by saying, after Solomon executes these men, that his kingdom is established. So I want you to kind of feel the context here. Solomon is a young man. He's just become king. He's walked out the marching orders that David, his father, has given to him. He's feeling the weight and the burden of government and leadership. And now we go into chapter 3. I want to look at verse 1. This is a very, very important verse. And it's a verse that we're going to reference as we get to the end of this message. Solomon made an alliance with Pharaoh, king of Egypt. In my Bible, I underline the word alliance. Solomon made an alliance with Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and married his daughter. So the very first thing that the scriptures tell us after the scriptures tell us that Solomon's kingdom is established. So there's settlement, there's security. The marching orders that have initially been given to Solomon have been fulfilled, and the very first thing that 1 Kings chapter 3 tells us is that he enters into an alliance with a foreign country and marries the Pharaoh's daughter. He brought her to the city of David until he finished building his palace and the temple of the Lord and the wall around Jerusalem. This is a really fascinating, and this is a really obscure verse. Like we are launching into a figure that takes up more chapters in the book of 1 Kings than anybody else. So like, when you read the scriptures, I want to encourage you to pay attention to where things are situated. Pay attention to how much time someone gets in that particular book or in that particular chapter. Like, particularly when you get into the Gospels, there is a sequence, there's a strategic thought that goes into how things are sequenced because the author is... The author has an agenda. So we have to understand that when 1 Kings is being written, the author has an agenda. There's a reason why the book opens up with David as an old man after the entire book of 1 and 2 Samuel had been dominated talking about David's strength and power. There's a reason. There's a reason why Solomon uh, takes up chapters 3 through 11. And if you read through the remainder of the book of First Kings, you'll find that some kings only get three or four verses. Solomon gets nine chapters. There's a reason. God's trying to tell us something through the strategic way that he is placing things in the book. And so the first verse that launches us in 
to Solomon's rule tells us that the first thing that he does as he starts his leadership journey is he enters into an alliance by marrying Pharaoh's daughter. Let's read the remainder of this in 1 Kings chapter 3. The people, however, were still sacrificing at the high places because a temple had not yet been built for the name of the Lord. This is all so insightful. Solomon goes off. He marries a woman from a foreign country, and the people, are, are, they're still worshiping God at a high place because a temple had not yet been built. What we're going to find is that there are actually four years that go by in Solomon's leadership before he even begins the process of building the temple. Verse 3, Solomon showed his love for the Lord by walking according to the instructions given him by his father David, except that he offered sacrifices and burned incense on the, uh, on the high places. You're going to find these words. These are very, very important words. They're these obscure words that you would almost pass over. Look at verse 2 again. The people, and here's the word, however. However. It's a really important word. Verse 3, Solomon showed his love for the Lord by walking according to instructions, except, that's a very important word, however, except. All right, let's go to verse 4. The king went to Gibeon to offer sacrifices, for that was the most important high place. And Solomon offered a thousand burnt offerings on that altar. A thousand burnt offerings. It's an important number. We're going to get to that number a little bit later. A thousand burnt offerings. And for those of you guys who have any familiarity with what it takes to offer one burnt offering, I mean, you got to build an altar. You got to go out and find you a big fatty calf that meets certain specifications and qualifications. You have to slaughter that big, massive, heavy animal, chop it up into pieces, get the fire burning and throw that animal on top of that altar. And Solomon does this not once, not twice, but say it with me, a thousand times. This is an act of radical worship. This is an act of radical devotion. And there are times throughout the scriptures, we don't have time to get into all of it today, but there are times when I believe God will invite us into moments of radical worship. I want you to learn how to pay attention to those moments when you sense God inviting you to do something a little bit above the extra, above the norm, beyond the norm. Because those are moments when I believe that God is inviting you into acceleration zones in your faith. Those are benchmark seasons. Those are benchmark moments. There's, there's, there's special places of encounter when God invites you into places of radical worship and radical devotion. That could be a whole myriad of things. Like for me, I think about times when God asked me to lay down certain things. And I also think about times when God asked me to give certain things. I'll never forget one time at the beginning of the year, our church was, was taking up a first fruits offering. And the Lord spoke to my heart and he says, I want you to give $10,000 this year. And I said, Lord, I don't have $10,000. And he says, I know, but if you'll believe me, and if you'll begin to sow towards that end, then I'll, I, for over the course of the next 12 months, above and beyond the tithe, I will give you and your wife $10,000 to give to me. And it became a faith journey. And it was a moment of radical devotion, radical obedience. The scripture tells us in Hebrews chapter 13 that there is something called a sacrifice of praise. 
How many of you guys know what I'm talking about? Anybody ever experienced a sacrifice of praise? Where in the presence of God, you just felt the compulsion to lean in and to give him more, to, 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 to sing a little bit louder and to clap a little bit louder and to like every, every ounce of your body is exhausted and fatigued and you don't want to give God this type of radical praise, but God is saying, I'm inviting you to give me a sacrifice of praise. Friends, I'm just here to announce to you today that there are special places of encounter when you lean in on places of radical devotion and radical worship and radical praise. And I believe that's what was happening right here with Solomon. A thousand burnt offerings and then God shows up. And God appears to Solomon in a dream and we find this here at verse 5. At Gibeon, the Lord appeared to Solomon during the night and he said, ask for whatever you want me to give you. Imagine God himself shows up to you. And he says, whatever it is that you want, whatever it's in your heart, whatever you ask me for, and you can't ask me for more asks. Not allowed to ask for more wishes. You only get one right here, one shot. I've thought about that so much over the past 30 years of walking with God. It's almost become kind of like this psychoanalytical thing, like, God, I don't want to ask for the wrong thing. It's like this test of revealing what really is in my heart. God, what if I say the wrong thing? What would I say if you asked me for just one thing? But it's kind of a fun little journey in God spiritually. What would I ask for if God asked me to ask him for just one thing? Here's what Solomon answers. Verse 6, Solomon answered, You've shown great kindness to your servant, my father David, because he was faithful to you and righteous and upright in heart. You have continued this great kindness to him, and you have given him a son to sit on the throne This very day, verse 7, now, Lord, my God, you have made your servant king in place of my father, David. But I am only a little child, and I do not know how to carry out my duties. Your servant is here among the people you have chosen, a great people, too numerous to count, too numerous to number. So give your servant a discerning heart to govern your people and to distinguish between right and wrong. For who is able to govern this great people of yours? This is an amazing prayer. The scriptures tell us that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. The fear of the Lord. And as Solomon receives this massive weight of responsibility to lead the nation, he's not thinking about power, he's not thinking about prestige, he's not thinking about green rooms. He's not thinking about privilege. He's not thinking about wiping out his enemies. He's saying, God, I need something from you that I can only get from you. That is, I need the ability to know what is right and what is wrong. And I need the ability to discern what is just and what is righteous. And I'm young. You know, from a conventional common sense standpoint, the way you get wise is by living life, right? You live life, but you live life in in an evaluative and reflective way. You live a day, you reflect on that day. Did I make good decisions? Did I make bad decisions? Were there certain things that I would do differently? And then when you reflect that and you evaluate on that, you wake up, you're given another day, and hopefully you're making choices based on the experience you had the day before. And then when we have people whose lives and the wisdom of God that's been given to us, when we follow that wisdom and we follow the lives of other people who live wise lives, before you know it, over the course of time, the long obedience in the same direction of wisdom, we find ourselves becoming wise. Now, that's great. 
But what happens when you're thrust into responsibility and you don't have the luxury of years to accumulate that level of wisdom? That's where Solomon was at. Solomon is saying, God, I I don't have the luxury of the next three or four decades to learn how to be a good king. I need this now. And so what does he do? He does what James chapter 1, verse 4 and 5 tell us to do. He asks God. If any of you needs wisdom, ask God. Ask him for wisdom, and he will give to you liberally and freely without reproach shall it be given to him and to her. Before I go any further talking about some of you in the room today, uh, you're, hitting, you're hitting a wall in your business and it's not just a financial plateau. You can feel that things are, they're, they're, things are sterile. Things aren't popping like they used to pop. You're not experiencing that, that sense of purpose and urgency. God has a wisdom for the situation that you're in. There are some of you in the room, even spiritually, you feel like you've just plateaued and maybe you're deconstructing your faith or wrestling with things that you don't understand and God, God has a wisdom for that. Some of you are interacting with neighbors who have questions about social issues and you kind of feel a little sheepish because you're not exactly sure how to respond. And it seems like the cultural minefield is if I make one wrong choice or one wrong decision, then the blowback is going to hit me. But I'm here to tell you today, church, there's a wisdom for that. There is a wisdom for every situation that you're facing in life, no matter how great, no matter how small, no matter how long you've been in this. And in the same way that Solomon said, I'm just a child. God, I humble myself before you. The fear of the Lord is the starting point of wisdom. Would you give me wisdom today? I want to encourage you. There is a wisdom from heaven for you. We're not promised situations that are ideal. Isn't that right? We're not promised on this side of eternity, on this side of the eschaton before Jesus comes and fulfills what he has started in his kingdom. We're not promised ideal, idyllic, perfect situations and scenarios in life. What we are promised is his presence and his perspective and his word and his wisdom will be given to us for every situation that we're in. And friend, for those of you guys who are like, man, you are experiencing this accelerative momentum in your life right now. Let me just tell you, you need wisdom for that season. You need wisdom for seasons of momentum so that you make the right choices in that momentum that will carry you when the momentum is gone. For those of you who are in dry seasons or desert seasons or dead seasons or grieving seasons, there's a wisdom for you in that season as well. Some of the worst decisions that we make can be in the seasons when we feel like all of the life and momentum of God are gone from us. In fact, one of the things that I tell young couples and young people all the time is don't make life-altering choices in low seasons when you don't have the counsel and the wisdom of God that are around you. It's really easy to make these massive decisions when you're feeling low emotionally, mentally, and spiritually. So look how God responds in verse 10. The Lord was pleased that Solomon asked for wisdom. Every time you ask God for his perspective, every time you ask God for his counsel, every time you ask God for his wisdom, it pleases the Lord. It pleases the Lord. God is happy to give you wisdom. God is happy to give you what you and I don't possess in and of ourselves. Verse 11, so God said to him, since you have asked for this, 
and not for long life or wealth for yourself, nor have asked for the death of your enemies, but you have asked for discernment and administering justice, I will do what you have asked. I will give you a wise and discerning heart so that there will never be anyone like you, nor will there ever be. It's important for us to recognize that wisdom comes from God. That there is a wisdom of God that can only come from God. It's not a conventional wisdom. It's not just a practical wisdom. It's not just a common sense wisdom. That there is an actual wisdom that comes from above. I want to encourage you to read over and meditate even on James chapter 3 verse 17 where James actually describes for us what the wisdom of God looks like. Scripture tells us that the wisdom of God loves peace. The wisdom of God is submissive. The wisdom of God is fruitful. The wisdom of God is impartial. Like if you desire wisdom that is from God, God begins to describe what that wisdom looks like. There is a wisdom that is from God that only comes from God. Okay, let's keep reading here. So Solomon asked for wisdom. God blesses him with wisdom. And then right after this, I'm not going to read the story, but Solomon is confronted with a moment where he has to decide between a very, he has got to judge a very difficult case. And God endows him with wisdom in that moment and the entire nation is marveling at how wise Solomon is. Look at 1 Kings chapter 4, verse 29. 1 Kings chapter 4, verse 29. This is just reiterating what we're going to hear over and over and over again in these nine chapters. God gave Solomon wisdom and very great insight and a breadth of understanding as measureless as the sand on the seashore. Solomon is young. He asks for wisdom. God gives wisdom. Look at chapter 5, verse 12. The Lord gave Solomon wisdom just as he had promised him. There were peaceful relations between Hiram and Solomon, and the two of them made a treaty. Over and over and over again, you see this consistent theme. God gave Solomon wisdom. God gave Solomon wisdom. Look with me, if you would, at chapter 6, verse 11. So what we're seeing here is we're seeing this big overview of Solomon's life from the beginning of his reign to the end. Chapter 6 begins with, Verse 11, the word of the Lord came to Solomon. He says, as for this temple that you are building, if you follow my decrees, if you observe my laws, if you keep all of my commands, I will fulfill through you the promise that I gave David, your father. And I will live among the Israelites and I will not abandon my people, Israel. What's happening right here? God is showing up to Solomon because Solomon has been commissioned to fulfill What is in David, his father's heart, to build God a temple? Up until this point, God has been hanging out in a tent. God gave specific instructions to Moses on how to build a tabernacle. He gave specific dimensions on how big and how wide and how long and how high this tabernacle is supposed to be. He gave Moses specific instructions on what's supposed to go in the tabernacle. And then David comes along hundreds of years later, and he has this burning desire to establish a permanent place in the earth where God can break in, where heaven and earth can be thin, and where the presence of God can come and dwell in and among and with his people. This was in the heart of David. 
And sadly, because of the life of war that David had lived, God shows up and says, David, you can't do this. But I tell you what, because it's in your heart, I'm going to allow your kids to do it. And so Solomon receives these blueprints, these blueprints that, that David purchased in the place of the Spirit. He hands Solomon the blueprints on how to build the temple. And now Solomon is not only tasked with leading Israel, but he's also tasked with fulfilling what is in the heart of his father, and that is building a temple. So God shows up and he encourages Solomon. And he says, son, if you'll continue to walk faithfully before me, I'm going to establish your throne, and I'm going to establish your leadership. I'm going to establish your legacy. I'm going to establish your lineage. That's an amazing promise. All right, so let's just pause real quick. What do we see happening up until this moment? We see that Solomon's got a lot going for him. Right, Solomon is born to a, a man that loves God. Solomon has this rich spiritual heritage that's been purchased for him. I mean, Solomon's dad wrote like two-thirds of the Psalms. I mean, the guy knew God. And Solomon is receiving this spiritual inheritance from his father. Like, First Kings starts off and it tells us that Solomon has alliances with people that are looking out for him. Nathan, Bathsheba. There are people that are like, Solomon, we're going to help you. We're going to support you. We're going to surround you. We're going to serve you. We're going to help you fulfill the purposes of God that are on your life. Man, that's amazing. Solomon offers up uh, offerings before the Lord, and God shows up to Solomon personally in an encounter. I don't know about you, but that's a pretty amazing thing. Like Solomon has this going for him. Solomon is encountering God. Solomon is... Um, he's wise enough in this moment, he's humble enough in this moment to ask God for something that actually pleases the heart of God. That's amazing. He's got that going for him. And then this guy is. This guy, this guy has, he's got insight on plants and spices. This guy has insights on how to administer justice. This guy writes Proverbs and people are memorizing them. And all of a sudden now there's an envoy that comes from a distant land and they're all bringing gifts to Solomon. And then Solomon says, you know what? I think it's time for me to build this temple. Israel was at peace with all of its neighbors. Now, why is that significant? What do you remember about Saul and David? Saul and David spent the majority of their kingship fighting wars, fighting the Philistines, fighting the Amalekites, fighting the Ammonites. And all of a sudden, Solomon steps into what is historically known as the golden age of Israel. And he's just chilling. He's like, this is sweet, man. Like anything I ask for, it's done. I mean like trees and cedars and timber and spices and gold. And the guy's so bored, he just starts like pointing at stuff like, hey, man, like overlay that with gold. Right? That, man, look at that. Man, dude, the speakers. Man, like cover the speakers in gold. Like I got so much stuff. I don't know what to do with it. Just start covering everything with gold. And that's what's happening in Solomon's life. Well, let's take a look right here, if we would, at chapter 11. It seems like to this moment, Solomon can do no wrong. It seems like at this moment that Solomon is the quintessential Christ figure in so many ways. But perhaps one of, if not the saddest epitaph in the entire scripture is the way that Solomon ends his life. We're going to find that here in 1 Kings chapter 11, beginning in verse 1. The scripture reads, King Solomon, however... Where did I see that word before? 
I felt like I've seen that word somewhere else. First Kings chapter three begins and it inserts this little tiny word called however in verse two. And you tell me whether or not you think this is completely coincidental that in the beginning of Solomon's life and at the end of Solomon's life, there's this little tiny word called however. King Solomon, however, loved many foreign women. Besides, who's that chick again? Besides Pharaoh's daughter. Look at the way he's, the author is masterfully bookending Solomon's life. So he loved more women than just Pharaoh's daughter, Moabites, Ammonites, Edomites, Sidonians, Hittites. Verse 2, they were from nations about which the Lord had told the Israelites, you must not intermarry with them. Why? Because they will surely turn your hearts after their gods. Friends, can I just pause here for just, just one moment? And I want to give you, I want to give you some discipleship perspective, some spiritual growth and maturity perspective. Those of you who have children, I'm sure you've given your given your children the same kind of perspective. Those of you who are teachers, those of you who are principals, those of you who are coaches, those of you who lead, I'm sure you've given your people this exact same kind of perspective. Every law was created for a reason. Isn't that right? doesn't matter what it is. You may not understand it. You may not have been in the origin story of why that law was created, but every law, good or bad, was created for a reason, which means that at some point, if you read a law or a rule that says don't do this, guess what? Someone did that at some point. But in the economy of God, every law, every rule, every word of instruction and every command is given to lead us to life. It's not to control, it's not to restrict, it's not to put a thumb on us. It's because every rule and every law that God gives us will lead us to the place of life. The the fruit of wisdom is intimacy with God and life in God. That is, that is the fruit of wisdom. That, that really is what the path of wisdom is all about. So really, you know, if you think about the past 40 to 50 years, the way that we have framed morality and Christianity is whether or not something is right or wrong, good or bad. But mostly, a lot of people have been turned off to Christianity and morality because of this, that's not right, that's wrong. What if we reframed these things and we looked at things less in terms of right and wrong and we really got into the spirit of the question and asked whether or not things lead us to life? Is the wisdom of God in that? And friends, we could pull out every social issue. We could pull out all of the conflicts and all the disputes on every side. And at the, at the core of every one of those conflicts is this question. Does this lead me to the life of God? What is the wisdom of God on that matter? And friends, if you don't understand what the wisdom of God is in a command of restriction or a command of commission, it's an invitation. There's wisdom here. There's something deeper. There's life inside of this. 
Well, why can't I sleep with my girlfriend before we get married? Well, listen, listen. There's, there's, actually, there's actually a wisdom in that. There's a wisdom that will lead you to life that will actually lead your relationship to flourishing, which is what you want. Okay? And guys, listen, we can go into every scenario that where is the life of God in this? So when Solomon is hearing this, and this is not the first time he heard this because this is actually something that God put in the law in Exodus and Leviticus, God says, guys, listen, I know they're beautiful, but if you intermarry with women from other countries in this season, in this season of history, in this season of redemptive history, what I'm telling you people of Israel is that your hearts will be led astray. And this is what is played out in the life of Solomon right here. You must not intermarry with them because they will surely turn your hearts after their gods. Here's another word that puts the fear of the Lord in me. In the NIV, the scripture says, nevertheless, nevertheless, Solomon held fast to them in love. So we see this language, however, except nevertheless, like I hear what you're saying, God, but nevertheless, I'm going to go ahead and do what I think is right. Like, I I see you, but however, I'm going to go ahead and do what I think is right. I'm going to go ahead and look out for me. I'm going to go ahead and do what's best for me. Right? Are you hearing this? It sounds a lot like the garden, if you ask me. It sounds a lot like Genesis 3. Oh, I know that God said don't touch the fruit. Ah, but, but, But nevertheless, it looks good. And it's pleasing to the eye. And it's good for gaining wisdom. Look at verse 3, 1 Kings chapter 11. He had 700 wives of royal birth and 300 concubines. And his wives led him astray. Do you remember when I mentioned there was a certain number that was pretty significant? Guys, I can't take any credit for this. I finished first service and I'm walking upstairs to go into the office to sit down for a little bit. And as I'm walking up, there is a man who's visiting his son, taps me on the shoulder as I'm walking up and he says, hey, did you see the irony in those numbers? And I was like, what are you talking about? And he was like, well, isn't it interesting that in the beginning of Solomon's life, he's offering God a thousand... He's offering God a thousand burnt offerings. And at the end of his life, he's offering a thousand women his affection. Dude, this author is sick, (laughs) y'all. Solomon starts his journey. He starts his journey. and And the scriptures will use these magnificent numbers, sometimes exaggerate, like in an exaggerative way, sometimes in a literal way that will shock us, but the scripture's hiding this in here for a reason. That at the beginning of Solomon's life, at the beginning of his radical pursuit of God, he is saying there is nothing that is off limits to you. In the beginning of Solomon's life, he is saying, I'm gonna give you my absolute, I'm gonna give you a thousand burnt offerings, but here's what's so insidious, that underlying a thousand burnt offerings, there's one woman that's planted deep in his heart. In chapter 3, verse 1, he made an alliance with Pharaoh and married her daughter. And that one, nevertheless, and that one, 
however, and that one exception turned into another and turned into another and turned into another and turned into another and turned into another justification and turned into another reasoning and turned into another, yeah, but God, I've got this. I can handle this. I've got this on lock. I can do this. But listen, look with me at chapter 11, verse four. As Solomon grew old. As Solomon grew old, his wives turned his heart. And his heart was not fully devoted to the Lord his God. I think there's something hidden in that phrase as Solomon grew old. You see, the longer that you and I compromise with competing affections, the longer that we allow certain things to take root inside of us, the older we get, the less energy we have to fight the gravitational pull of those competing affections from pulling our hearts away from God. One of my mentors says that the years of 45 to 55 is the decade of stupid which I just started that a year ago. <laughs> you ever wonder why it is, why is that, that men who are up here and women who are up here and we're preaching, we're praying, and we're prophesying, and we're praising? That's four Ps, by the way. Uh, men and women up here, you know, sing, singing, singing incredible songs to God. Well, what is going on? Why are we making these decisions to give our hearts to competing affections? It's because somewhere along the way, we married Pharaoh's daughter. We made an unholy alliance that we were unwilling to break. And all of the good God activity. Man, I'm getting encounters with God. I'm getting visions with God. Listen, your wisdom, your knowledge in God, your spiritual gifts in God can actually deceive you. Your faithful church going can deceive you. Solomon, there is a scripture that tells us that when Solomon dedicated the, 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 the temple of God, that the presence of God came in so thick like a cloud that everybody had to lay their instruments down and the priests had to stop ministering. This is what we dream for. This is what, this is what maybe not you, but I know there's a circle of people that are like, God, I dream for you to show up in the tangible manifest Shekinah glory of God in such a way, oh God, that it leaves me undone. And yet we can encounter the fullness of God. And when we have a nevertheless, however, except in our hearts, it creates this little foothold inside of us that can someday lead to nevertheless, his heart was not fully devoted to the Lord, his God. I don't know about you, because this is not a word of condemnation. This is a fear of the Lord warning for me. Kevin Gutman reached out to me a few weeks ago. Kevin leads one of our men's prayer groups on Tuesday morning. I'm actually speaking at it this Tuesday, and he said, Jade, would you teach us or would you talk to us about the topic of how to finish well? And as a 46-year-old man, I'm going, what, Kevin, I, I, I have nothing to say. Like, talk to me again in 40 years. Talk to me again when I've actually finished well about how to finish well. 
all I can talk with you about and all I can talk with your men about on Tuesday morning is what I'm trying to set up in my life so that this, this right here, 1 Kings chapter 3 or 1 Kings chapter 11 verse 3 and 4 is not the end of my story. Guys, what do we do with this? How do we make sense of this? Let me ask you a question that's just been bugging me and I really don't have the answer for. How is it that someone has been given a gift from God? Wisdom. And in their wisdom, they lose their heart. How is it possible to know all the right answers? How is it possible to know what the right course of action is in every situation and lose our affection for Jesus? How is that possible? Jonathan, if you'd come up, I want to just lead you in a moment of reflection, church. You know, I think to, to just lean in on how devastating the end of Solomon's life is, I've got to read you this next verse. Verse 5 tells us that not only did Solomon's wives turn his heart, watch this, verse 5, he followed Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidonians, and Molech, the detestable god of the Ammonites. Does anybody have any idea what Molech is about? The god Molech was worshipped by child sacrifice. The god Molech was worshipped by casting unborn and innocent babies at the altar of Molech. That's why... That's why the scripture says he's detestable. How do you go from having encounters with God? David is your daddy. You've got alliances that are helping to set your life up for success. Everything you touch is turns to gold, figuratively and literally. And how is it that at the end of your life, you're building altars to gods that demand child sacrifice? I don't, I don't understand that. And the only thing that I can see here is that the scripture highlights over and over and over again that in the middle of all this great activity, David had areas, or Solomon had areas of his heart that he was unwilling to give over completely to God. I'm gonna hold on to this one, Lord. You're not allowed to touch this. Pharaoh's daughter is mine. Friends, would you just close your eyes for a moment? And here's the question that I'm wrestling with. Lord, are there any Pharaoh's daughters in my life that are stealing my affections from you? Lord, are there any neverthelesses or howevers are there any areas of compromise? Are there any areas of justification? Or I'd say to myself, I've got a handle on this. Lord, are there any areas of my life I'm unwilling to let go of? I'm unwilling to give up. Is there anything competing for my affection with you, God? I'm just going to let that question and any question that's surrounding it to just sit in the atmosphere and, and just interact with the Holy Spirit.
whatever he wants to illuminate, whatever he wants to put his finger on, I encourage you to respond. Friends, let me let you in on a little window of a discovery I made, and, here's, and here lies the gospel. I was in worship in second service, and here's what occurred to me. I can't even have a fully devoted heart without God giving me the desire to have a fully devoted heart. And even with the desire for a fully devoted heart to God, I need God to be fully devoted to God. And so I just was asking myself in worship, I was like, God, would you give me the desire to ask you for a fully devoted heart? More than wisdom, more than alliances, more than the presence of God even, more than encounters, more than fulfilling expectations, more than walking in my purpose and my destiny, more than, more than stewarding wisdom for justice. God, I want a fully devoted heart to the person of Jesus. And so the only way I know how to do this, church, is to pray a prayer of consecration for myself and for you. I pray, God, today by the power of your spirit that you would search me, O oh God, that you would know me, that you would know my wicked ways. Lord, that you would know the inclinations and the propensities of my heart, God, the, the proclivity of my heart, the leanings of my heart. Lord, I'm asking that you would show me what I can't see and, ask, and I ask you to show me what I don't want to see. God, I'm asking that wherever we have made unholy alliances with Pharaoh and his daughter, God, I pray that you would break them. That you would give us the courage and the strength to break every unholy alliance. And God, that you would clean our affections and redirect our affections to you. And Lord, for any of us in the room who have the who might have the tendency to kind of minimalize this and say, oh, this is, this is extreme. Lord, I'm asking that the fear of the Lord would rest on us. God, I don't want my life to end like Solomon's. We want to be a people who are fully devoted to you, Jesus. Cleanse us. Consecrate us. God, heal us. Lord, find the broken places inside of us that push us to Pharaoh and push us to his daughter, God. I'm just, I'm just reminded, Lord, right now that all those, 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 those thousand females were feeding something that was unwhole in Solomon. 
God, if there's things that I'm running to because they're feeding something or feeding a lot of things that are unwhole and broken and dysfunctional and unhealed, Lord, I'm asking that you would heal those things inside of me, the rejection, the dysfunction, the need for attention, the need for approval, the need for power, the need for, to, to be great, God. Heal those things inside of us so that there are no compromised fractures in our hearts that lead us into the arms of another seductress God. Holy Spirit, come. Holy Spirit, come. Friends, if you would, would you just hold out your hand right here or your hands? And if there's something that you are sensing the Holy Spirit say, would you just, would you just give this to me? Would you let me clean this and redeem this? Would you let me hold this for you? I want to encourage you to do that right now. Father, we surrender. We surrender. We trust you. Come cleanse our affections, God. Come realign our allegiances and our alliances. In Jesus' name. I invite you to stand with me to your feet as we come to the table of the Lord. You can exit on the left. All of our ministers at the table, I invite you to come. Friends, receive grace today. Receive forgiveness today as you receive the body and the blood of Christ. You can exit on your left. Receive the pronouncement. Come back to your seat and we'll all take this together.
Brothers and sisters, I, I felt prompted as we were coming to the table to remind you how deeply the Father loves you. And that perfect love casts out all fear. You know, I think it would be easy to hear a message like this. I'm thinking back to my youth, going, oh my God, oh my God, if I have, if there's anything inside of me, it could like turn my heart from God. Listen, the Father loves you so much. The Father loves you so much. And he's after your heart. He loves you so much that he would even give you Solomon's story as a picture, right? As an encouragement. So friends, I don't want you to walk out of here afraid. Can't tell you how many, how many times I've shed tears and I've wrestled things out of me. Sanctification is a process. Like disassociating and divorcing Pharaoh's wives across, you know, in my life has been a process. So I want you to take heart today because the power is not in your sincerity or in your desperation or in your tears or in your emotions. The power is in the death and resurrection of Jesus. The power is in his cleansing blood and his forgiveness. And the power is in his, is in his abiding spirit. One of the things that we have that Solomon never had is we have the Spirit of God living inside of us who is the wisdom of God. Amen. Friends, on the night when our Lord and our Savior, King Jesus, was betrayed, he took a loaf of bread and he broke it. You can break this in your hands. And when he broke it, he said, this is my body. My literal physical body is being broken so that you can experience wholeness. So in the name of Jesus, receive the life of God and the bread of Christ. And then he took the cup and he said, this is the cup of the new covenant in my blood. There's a new agreement here. There's a new transaction. And you give me your sin and I give you grace and forgiveness and I cleanse you and I make you whole and put my spirit inside of you. This is salvation. And this is what God invites all of us into. So in the name of Jesus, friends, your sins are forgiven by the blood of Christ. Let us receive by faith. Hallelujah. How many of you are grateful for Jesus? Come on, give him a hand today. Thank you, Lord. Let's sing a song of doxology, friends. Praise God from whom all the
Amen, amen, amen. Friends, if you want to be baptized, if you've never been baptized, or you know someone who wants to be baptized, we're having baptisms in two weeks. But there are some logistical steps that help us prepare for that. So would you please go to the Welcome Center, scan that QR code, fill out that registration form. You're going to get a follow-up this week. There's some discipleship material and some instruction on what's going to happen in two weeks. And it's just going to be a phenomenal service of baptism. Let me bless you as we're sent out of this place. In the name of Jesus, may the Lord draw near to you. May he give you himself. May the Lord reveal his great love for you. May the Lord fill you afresh with his spirit. May he give you strength and peace for your journey and send you into the world to be bright shining lamps of the goodness of God. And I pray it today in Christ's name. Amen. God bless you guys.